Well, tonight we come to one of my favorite passages in all of the Bible, that being Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 21, which deals with the wonderful subject of the second coming of the Lord Jesus. It's probably the most uh, majestic description because it's in Revelation and it's in the form of apocalyptic language. So, Revelation 19, 11 through 21, the return of the King. Jesus is coming again. Uh, hear what the Apostle John saw and then wrote. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many, the ESV says, diadems, and that's a good translation. There are actually two words in Greek for crown. Uh, there's the word Stephanos. If your name is Stephen or Stephanie, then your name means crown. And that was the crown given to someone that uh, won an athletic contest. Uh, the other is the word diadema, and here you have it transliterated into the English word diadem, and it was the word used to describe the crown of a king, uh, the crown of royalty. And actually, both crowns are applied to the Lord Jesus in the Bible, and appropriately so, but here it is the diadema, the kingly crown, the royal crown, and notice on his head are not, is not a single crown. On his head are many crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Now the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. A quick comment. I got myself in trouble at another church some time back in making a comment here. I made the argument, and I think rightly so, that this verse is not a justification for tattoos because I don't think the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords is tattooed on his thigh, I think it is on the robe that runs down alongside of his thigh. Now, having said that, I don't think you can really make an argument biblically against tattoos. You say, oh, no, 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 no. There's a single verse tucked back there in the Old Testament law that talks about people getting a tattoo. Well, if you read the text in its context, uh, what he is speaking against is acts of idolatry and pagan worship. That's what he's talking about. Now, I don't have a tattoo. Uh, I ain't going to get a tattoo. Uh, I try to tell my young students that what might look cool when they're 18 won't look so cool when they're 80. Body tends to sag and go down, not up. and Things uh, just don't seem to look quite the same. So I just encourage them to realize that what they get, uh, they're going to keep apart from rather expensive uh, procedures that will remove them. But having said that, uh, I've got students that have wonderful Bible verses tattooed on their wrist or on their ankle, and I have watched them use that as an avenue for sharing the gospel. And so, though I may not choose to do it, uh, I don't think you can uh, say with a almost a, a legalistic spirit, well, that's sinful, that's wrong, you shouldn't do that. I, I'm not going to go there. I don't think it's the wisest thing to do, but I don't think I can say it's an unbiblical thing to do. I don't think verse 16 is a supporting text 
for tattoos. So I want to be clear there. All right. Uh, then, verse 17, I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to the birds that fly directly overhead. I've often wondered if this is the inspiration for that classic movie by Alfred Hitchcock entitled The Birds. Uh, who's seen that? Oh, my goodness, I've watched it. And the young people don't even know what we're talking about. But I mean, it's a classic. I mean, that is a classic movie. And even though it's old and in black and white, it still scares the daylights out of me when I watch that thing, especially the old guy in the bathroom with the eyes missing. That uh, just still unnerves me to this day. So anyway, I just wonder. I have no, no hard and fast data that that is the case, but I can certainly see how he could get it because the birds that are flying directly overhead are called by this angel, Come and gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders. And you think, well, I'm not in that group, so I'm safe. Well, no, the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. No one escapes God's judgment who is not rightly related to him through Jesus Christ. Verse 19, And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh." Basically, I think you can outline the life of Jesus around seven major events. I think we would start with the incarnation when he entered into this world. The next major event is his baptism where he is baptized and anointed as the Messiah by John the Baptist. Immediately following that is his temptation when he goes out into the wilderness and demonstrates his qualifications to be the Messiah that God had called him to be, a suffering Messiah, a Messiah who would die. Following that, of course, is his crucifixion, then his bodily resurrection, then his ascension back into heaven, and then finally is the event that we're looking at this evening, the second coming of Jesus Christ, when he will come back to the earth. We will see this next week, establishing his universal and cosmic kingdom as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It is the last major event in the life history of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see it beautifully described here in chapter 19. It is the hope of the Apostle John which caused him to end the book in chapter 22 and verse 20 where he prayed, Even so, come Lord Jesus. Now, let me be clear. When we talk about the second coming of Jesus, we're talking about an event that will happen in time and space and history. He will come back historically. He will come back visibly. He will come back bodily to this earth. And it will indeed be a great and glorious return in awesome power. Now, when will it take place? It takes place immediately after the great tribulation of chapter 6 through 18. And it happens just before the millennial kingdom that is described in chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. So the tribulation is before it and the uh, millennium comes after it. Now, is the second coming described only in Revelation? Well, of course not. 
You find it described in the Old Testament in Daniel chapter 7, in Zechariah chapter 14. You find it in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But in particular, Matthew chapter 24 and 25, Jesus gives his lengthiest discussion of the end time in what we call the Olivet Discourse. It's also mentioned in Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing into heaven? This same Jesus which you've seen taken up will so come in like manner as you've seen him go into heaven. And then even in Revelation, there are allusions to the second coming in chapter 11, chapter 14, chapter 16, and then climatically here in chapter 19. Theologians say that there are at least six things we should understand and affirm when it comes to the second coming of Jesus. I'll just list them for you. Number one, as I've already said, it will be personal. Secondly, it will be historical. Third, it will be visible. Four, it will be physical. Five, it will be victorious. And six, it will be cosmic in its benefits. In other words, it's just not believers who will benefit when Jesus comes again, but as Romans chapter 8 teaches us, all of creation is longing for His coming again. And so creation that has been groaning is going to be satisfied when Jesus comes the second time. Now, what are some of the purposes identified with His coming again? Well, let me give you at least three of them. And we're going to get to the text and just laying kind of a theological foundation for you. Number one, it will be to judge Satan, sin, and the evil system of this world, in particular Babylon that was described in chapter 17 and chapter 18. Secondly, it will establish the universal, visible manifestation of His kingdom. Question, is Jesus reigning today? Yes. But is He reigning visibly and cosmically and in such a way that everyone is aware of His universal reign? No. Now, there are many people that don't even know who He is. There are many people that know who He is and reject His Lordship. So though He is reigning in heaven, reigning in our hearts, His kingdom is expanding and growing, the universal aspect of His reign will not be established until He comes again. So it will establish His universal, visible reign. It will judge Satan and sin in the system of this world. And, and this is why the book of Revelation really was written, is to provide motivation to you and me to stay faithful in this fallen, evil world no matter what. Uh, some of us will endure. Some of us will be martyred. Some of us will flourish, though not many. Some of us will indeed face horrible, horrible persecution. So, what are the climactic events that will even be alluded to in our text this evening that will take place at the end? Well, number one, the Battle of Armageddon. We've already seen it described in chapter 14 and also in chapter 16. Secondly, what Matthew 25, 31 through 46 calls the sheep and goat judgment. Thirdly, the resurrection of the saints. We see this in Revelation 20, verse 4. And fourthly, the establishment of His 1,000-year reign or millennial kingdom on this earth. Now, next week I will make the argument and share why I personally hold to what is called a premillennial understanding of Revelation chapter 20. I have good friends that are post-millennial, not many of them. There are not many of them left. A few more that are amillennial, but I'm still convinced uh, after all these years that the best understanding of the Bible, and in particular Revelation 21 through 6, is a premillennial understanding. Christ will come to this earth before He actually establishes a literal thousand-year reign upon planet earth. And so these are the things that we are looking forward to and anticipating as He 
comes again. And before we look at that, let me just give you this really nice statement by Graham Goldsworthy, who points out that there is a clear and obvious contrast between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. For example, first time he came, he rode on a donkey. Second time he comes on a great white horse. First time he came as the suffering servant. Next time he comes as king and lord. First time he came in humility and meekness. Next time he comes in majesty and power. First time he came to suffer the wrath of God for sinners. The next time he will come to establish the kingdom of God for his saints. The first time he was rejected by many as Messiah. The second time he will be recognized by all as Messiah and Lord. The first time he came to seek and save the lost. The second time he will come to judge and rule as king. The first time, you could say it this way, I like to, he came as God incognito. The second time, he will come as God in all of his splendor. And so these are the things that contrast his first and second coming, and these, this latter category are the things we're looking forward to. So, three overarching observations from chapter 19, verses 11 through 21 this evening. Number one, Jesus will return in glory and power. That is the theme of verses 11 through 16. You know, think about it. Revelation 19 through 22 causes the Bible to end the way it's supposed to. Causes the Bible to end the way that it's supposed to. Imagine for just a moment we didn't have the book of Revelation. There'd be a sense in which it would be incomplete. It really would because it gives us what our hearts have longed for all of our lives since we came to know Him as Lord and Savior. In fact, the church for 2,000 years has been longing for, praying for, waiting for the fulfillment of Revelation 19, 20, 21, and 22. John Piper says it really well. There are two appearings of Christ. One is called an appearing of grace, but the other is called an appearing of glory. The Christ who will come in glory is the Christ who came in grace. What God's grace has begun in our lives through the first coming of Christ, His glory will complete in our lives through His second coming. And so here, John is describing the second coming, but he primarily focuses upon His victory that He will achieve over His enemies as the conquering, if you like, warrior Messiah. So, as He comes, what do we see? Well, first... His appearance will be glorious. Verse 11. Then I saw heaven open. So what is unfolding is in the heavens. And behold, a white horse. Now, if you remember our earlier study, it was some time back. Back over there in chapter 6 and verse 2, we saw a rider on a white horse. But this rider is different. That rider clearly is the spirit of conquest that precedes war. But I don't think we are stretching the text to realize that the one who comes in the spirit of conquest is an individual, and that individual in chapter 6 and verse 2 is the Antichrist. He once more is counterfeiting the coming of the true Christ. This writer is not the Antichrist. You say, how do you know? Look at how he's described. The one sitting on the white horse is called faithful and true. And it is in righteousness that he judges and makes war. Let me back up. He comes on a white horse, could be a symbol of purity. But he could also, in the context it fits, could be a symbol of victory. 
any time in the ancient world a great general had won a military, that's not fair. Almost any time. You know, it's always we should be careful with our absolute statement. So almost any time that a general would come back following a great military conquest, he would come back in in a great parade on a white horse. It did not symbolize his purity. It symbolized his victory. So this white horse is symbolic of purity and victory. And the one who is sitting on it is called. And what we're going to see in the next few verses is that the Lord Jesus has five names. Four of them in this text are revealed. One of them is concealed, as we will see in just a moment. So, first of all, he is called faithful and true. That's faithful. It conveys the idea of his dependability and his reliability, the fact that he is trustworthy in every way. The fact that he is called true is the fact, uh, emphasized that he is authentic, uh, he is genuine, he is the real thing. In other words, what he says, you can believe. And when he acts, you can trust him. In fact, he can do what no other ruler has ever done in all of history in righteousness. He judges and he makes war. So just by that one verse, we know that this writer is not the Antichrist. This writer is the true Christ, and that will be borne out as we go on. Then look at what it says of him in verse 12. There are three further characteristics noted. His eyes are like a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. His eyes are like a flame of fire. We saw that earlier in chapter 1. It speaks of the fact that he sees not only what we do, he sees what we think, he sees what we feel, he sees everything about us. I, I like to remind folks that those who die without Christ will stand at the great white throne judgment. They will not be able to shake their fist in God's face and say, you are unfair. They will not be able to do that. Because not only will He reveal at the judgment every act, He will also reveal every thought, every emotion, every aspect of their sinfulness against Him. In fact, if anything, they will condemn themselves by the judgment that will take place at the great white throne. His eyes are like a flame of fire. On His head are many diadems, not a single diadem, but many diadems. Why? Because He is, as it says in verse 16, the King of kings, and He is also the Lord of lords. And then it also says there in this particular verse that he has a name written that no one knows but himself. Now, I've had a lot of fun throughout the years. You say, why? Because when I've taught the book of Revelation, I've taught it many times, uh, or I've taught from a particular text, uh, this one in particular. I probably have taught this text traveling as I do and doing prophecy conferences. I bet I've taught this text 30, 40 times. I've had people over and over and over come to me and say, well, Brother Danny, have a question. What's that name that he has that nobody knows but him? And I just think, my soul. Did, did you not just read? I mean, do I look like Jesus? I don't think so. I don't think I could pass for him. And the fact of the matter is, nobody knows the name but him. Now, I don't know the name, but I do think I know why he has the name. You see, I think it is a way of communicating to us that even after we've been in heaven for millennium after millennium after millennium, we will never, ever, ever fully exhaust how great and awesome and wonderful is Jesus. We'll never be infinite. We will never be omniscient. You see, again, we'll get to this later. 
Uh, in fact, I have the, the, the lessons on, the, on heaven. I'm going to have uh, two sessions where we'll deal with 50 most common asked questions about heaven. And uh, one of the questions, of course, is asked many times is, will heaven be boring? No. Oh, my goodness, no. Heaven will be the most exciting, dynamic place in every conceivable way, physically, spiritually, mentally. Some of us who are kind of lightweights intellectually are going to love heaven because our minds will work perfectly and our minds will be able to learn for all of eternity. We will never know fully the omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent God. So all of eternity we will get to learn more and more and more and more. And the fact that He has a name that no one knows but Him is, I think, implied or does imply that particular truth. Then he moves to verse 13, and here he tells us, He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Now let me work backwards, it's easier. That he is called the Word of God simply means he is God's communication to us. He is picking up on the theme of John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was was God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so as the Word of God, He communicates God to us. Again, I love when I'm sharing the Gospel to say to people, if you want to know what God is like, just get to know Jesus. Because when you're looking at Jesus, you are looking at God. He perfectly communicates God to us. But prior to that, you also see the statement, and He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Now, that raises a question. What is the blood that is on the robe that he is wearing? And Bible scholars differ on this. Some believe uh, it is the blood of his enemies. And you can make a really good argument for that in, in light of the fact that Isaiah 63 is cited in these verses. And Isaiah 63 talks about a horrific eschatological judgment where bloodshed is everywhere. Furthermore, remember when we read about the Battle of Armageddon. The, the, the blood will flow in the valley of Jezreel up to the height of a horse's bridle for over 175 miles. So some believe it is the blood of his enemies. Others think it is the blood of martyrs. And that is those who have died for their testimony to faith in Christ. And that certainly we know is a prominent theme in the book of Revelation. Then others believe it is the blood of Christ. And it is the blood of His atoning work. Now, I acknowledge that this is the contextual view that would be most easily um, affirmed. I just can't get away from this one. Because I know that the Bible teaches in Hebrews that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And I just have a sense that we will probably be reminded some way, many ways in heaven that we are there because of His shed blood and that without that we'd have never had access into heaven. Uh, One man that I read said, is it not possible that, uh, and I like this because that way I don't have to disagree with anybody. I'm not really a disagreeable person. I'm really not. Uh, That it's all three. That the blood on His robe is the blood of His enemies. It is also the blood of the martyrs who were brutalized by His enemies. And it is the atoning blood that makes it possible for those who were once his enemies to now be his friends. 
I like that, and I, I would not fight you or, or get into a squabble with you over any of those three views because all three of them can certainly be affirmed by what we read in this particular text. Then look at what it says in verse 14. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Now that raises a question. Who are these individuals that are arrayed in fine linen, white and pure? And of course, there are only two options. One option is it is angels. And we do know from Matthew chapter 24 and verse 31 that when Jesus comes again, angels will come with him. The other possibility is it is believers. It is saints who are coming with him. And I think that is the better view in this context. In other words, I think when he comes again, angels will come with him, but human beings will come with him as well. And you say, well, why do you say that? Because of what we saw last week. Look back up there in verse 7 and verse 8. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. Why? For the marriage of the Lamb, that is, of the Lord Jesus, has come, and His bride, that is the church, has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with, and there's the exact same phrase, fine linen, bright and pure. Translated white and pure and fine linen in verse 8 and the same in verse 14. So I think here, the ones that are in view as coming with Him are believers. But notice what it says. Don't, don't, don't run past the verse too fast. The armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were what? Following Him. Following Him on white horses. We don't fight battles like that anymore. You think of any great military conquest today, and the generals, which are, of course, absolutely essential to leading the way, they're not leading the charge. They just don't. They're, they're way, way, way back uh, in a protective bunker in most instances, sending people out uh, on the battlefield. It's not true when Jesus comes again. But let me add something else to it. Not only will we be following Him, we will be watching Him. There's nothing in the Bible, not a single word, that says you and I do a single thing at the end time battle that takes place. You say, what do you mean by that, Danny? What I mean by that is this. When he came the first time, he won the battle without your help or mine. When he comes the second time, he will win the battle without your help or mine. We will not be there as participators. We will be there as spectators as he once more wins the battle on our behalf. In fact, look at what it says there in verse 15 and 16. From his mouth comes a sharp sword. That is a reference to Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 4. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. That is a quote from the Messianic Psalm, Psalm 2, verse 8 and verse 9. So he just speaks the word and the battle is over. He will then take charge and rule decisively and rule completely because he rules them with a rod of iron. Then the Isaiah 63 reference comes in. He will rule them with a rod of iron and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And he can do all of this for one simple reason. On his robe... And on his thigh he has a name written. It is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Um, she used to frustrate me to no end. But you have to admit that Lucille Ball was a really good actress. I mean, she was a psycho chick 
And she was just, but she was hilarious. And do you remember the, the uh, episode where she gets into the vat with the grapes? Remember that? And then she gets knocked down, and I just, and then there's a big, but she, what's she doing? She's in a vat of grapes, stomping. And that's what they did in the ancient world. They would stomp the grapes, and they would flow down into a vat, kind of be going through a purify, and then flow on down. And so you'd trample out the grapes, and of course the grapes disappeared. Uh, the grapes vanished. The grapes were destroyed. And this is the imagery that you have here. It's the image of the Lord Jesus coming back as if the world was a great vat, and He steps in and He begins to stomp. And by the time He's finished, there's nothing left but the running blood of His enemies. It's very, very picturesque and very powerful. We don't really relate to it very well, but you can begin to think of Lucy... But don't think about Lucy too much, but just think of what she was doing there in that particular episode and then think of it in terms of the imagery that this would have conveyed to those in the first century. And so he is able to do all of this in his return in glory and power because of that fourth and final revealed title, King of all kings and Lord of all lords. He indeed does have a glorious appearance. Saw that in 11 through 13. I actually jumped ahead of my outline, didn't I? He is holy in His return with His armies, and His authority is unparalleled as He judges the world as King of kings and as Lord of lords. So King Jesus will return in glory and power. Secondly, verses 17 and 18. King Jesus will judge all those who have rejected Him. Apostle Paul anticipated his approaching execution in 2 Timothy chapter 4. And there he wrote these words, listen. There is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, sounds like Revelation 19:11, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but he will reward all who have loved and looked forward to his appearing. Then the Apostle John writes in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2, It does not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. Now you say, Danny, why do you read those two passages? Because it's sad to me and tragic to me and heartbreaking to me that those who do not know Christ do not have that to look forward to. They do not look forward to receiving a crown of righteousness. They do not look forward to being transformed into the image of Jesus. No, they look forward to being the main meal at what is called the Great Supper of God. Notice that it says here in the text that, first of all, no one will escape, verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. It doesn't mean he's literally in the sun, but in this apocalyptic vision, it's almost ecliptical. You've got this angel, this giant angel with the sun to his back giving a very ominous and and foreboding appearance. So I saw this great angel standing in the sun. And with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God. John Piper notes that Matthew chapter 24 verses 27 and 28 probably speak to this verse. You say, how so? Here's what he writes. 
The second coming of Jesus is like lightning and vultures. He says, it will be globally unmistakable. It will be as publicly unmistakable as lightning, Matthew 24, 27. And the second coming of Christ will be like vultures who come down on a corpse in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 28. When the world is ready for judgment like roadkill, then the vultures show up, and then will come great wrath. This will not be private, secret, or pleasant for unbelievers. He will come on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, Matthew 24, 30, and the judgment will be like vultures sweeping in on the corpse of human rebellion. And so it's called the bird feast, but I don't think it'd be stretching it to say, yes, it'll be a a feast for the vultures of this world that God uses at what is called the Great Supper of God. Now, you have to draw a contrast in your mind between what we saw last week in chapter 19, verse 9, where you have the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's a really good meal to attend. Now you have the Great Supper of God, which is a really tragic meal to attend. Back in chapter 19 and verse 9, the saints are called to come and celebrate with the Lord. Here, sinners are called and condemned by the Lord for a bird feast or a vulture's banquet. And so, there will be no escape. Secondly, verse 18, there will be no discrimination. Verses 17 and 18, by the way, draw from Ezekiel's prophecy of Gog in Ezekiel chapter 39. Now, there's all sorts of debate as to where exactly the uh, judgment of Gog and Magog in Ezekiel 38 and 39 fall. Uh, I I acknowledge I'm not certain. Certainly, uh, it would seem to fall after the millennium, but then there are some who believe it will be climactic in that event following the millennium, but with precursors leading up to it, Certainly the Bible often functions in that kind of a way. But here's what Scott Duvall says about this particular verse. Everyone will participate in one of two eschatological feasts. The righteous joining in the wedding supper of the Lamb or the wicked becoming the feast at the great supper of God. God will judge the wicked from every social category. Social status or rank will not be enough to exempt the ungodly from the judgment. And he's exactly right. Come and gather for the great supper of God, verse 18, so that you might eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, the flesh of all men, whether they be free or slave, whether they be small or great. In other words, just as God is indiscriminate, And offering salvation to everyone, Acts chapter 10, verse 34, the story of the Gentile Cornelius, he is also indiscriminate in his judgment as well. Which then leads us to our third observation this evening. King Jesus will defeat the enemies who oppose him, verse 19 and verse 20. The long-awaited battle of Armageddon that we saw back in chapter 14, verses 14 through 20, And 16, verses 12 through 16, now listen to me, the long-awaited battle of Armageddon will be a disappointment. You say, in what way? It will be over just like that. It will be over in a flash. Now, some make a distinction 
between what they call the campaign of Armageddon, which could be a lengthier period of time, and the climactic battle of Armageddon, which clearly is in view here and is, again, boom, over just like that. Uh, Chuck Swindoll agrees with me. Uh, he says this, quote, Let's cut to the chase. Before anybody on earth can utter the word Armageddon, the battle will be over. When God determines the end has come, it is curtained. And Martin Luther, in his classic hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, remember how he said God deals with Satan and his devices? One little word shall fail him. F-E-L-L. And certainly, that would be consistent with what we read here in Revelation 19. So, when the king returns, what do we see? Two things. Number one, Jesus will capture his enemies, verse 19 and verse 20. Look at it with me. And I saw the beast. We met the beast when? Chapter 13. Who is the beast? He is the Antichrist. Is he a person? Is he a power? Or is he an evil spirit of the age? Yes, he is all of those things. He is an individual. He is a great political entity. And he is the evil spirit of this age. Well, here I think he has primarily the person involved. You say, why? Because the spirit of the age can't be cast into hell. And a political power makes no sense that you think in those categories of something going into hell. What we always see in the Bible is it is individuals who are cast into the lake of fire that burns with brimstone and sulfur and so on. So I think actually the ESV has a bad pronoun translation here, as I'll note as I read through this. So, I saw the beast, the Antichrist of chapter 13, 1 through 10. I saw the kings of the earth, we met them in chapter 17, with their armies gathered together to make war against him who is sitting on the horse and against his army. So, you've got Antichrist and the great armies of the world gathered together. I think initially there were humans fighting humans, but now they kind of come together. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so they turn all their attention on this apocalyptic, eschatological figure that is now in the heavens. You say, you really believe all that's going to happen? I really believe all that's going to happen. I don't think it's fairy tale. I don't think it's mythical. I think it is going to happen exactly like that. And as they gather there, the beast is captured, verse 20. But not just the beast, also the false prophet. Now, we met him earlier. So remember, just erase this right fast, we met the unholy trinity back in chapters 12 and 13. We met um, the dragon, Satan, who counterfeits God the Father. And we met the beast from the sea. We'll just say first beast, Antichrist, who counterfeits God the Son. And we met the second beast from the land, who is later called the false prophet. And he counterfeits God the Holy Spirit. So here we find all three of them because we'll get Satan next week, although he gets cast into an abyss, not the lake of fire, until after the millennium. And we'll talk about that two weeks later. So look again at verse 20. So the beast was captured, and with it, I would have said with him, I think it's a bad pronoun there, with him, the false prophet, 
who does what? Well, the false prophet was first of all in his presence. That is, he was always the, the sidekick, the minister of propaganda of Antichrist. Furthermore, he did signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and they were those who worshipped its image. Now, let me make a quick comment. Number one, not everything that appears to be a miracle is a miracle, okay? I don't know where you're coming from when it comes to the miraculous. I don't know whether you are like some people. I, I was at a conference today uh, over in Cary. Wonderful conference, wonderful brothers there. And one of the guys sitting on the platform with me said, well, I want to be clear when it comes to the role of the Holy Spirit, we should not... Neg- Let me say how he said it. I am a cessationist. But I think we make a huge mistake if we negate the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Well, I certainly agree with that. We, we make a huge mistake if we negate or neglect the ministry of the Holy Spirit. You say, well, what do you mean by that he is a cessationist? Well, that means he believes the miraculous gifts ceased at the end of the first century with the completion of the Bible. So he doesn't expect there to be any uh, speaking in tongues, no interpretation of tongues, no miracles, no gifts of healings. None of that happens today, at least God working through human instrumentality, okay? He says those things are gone. I don't agree with that. I still think that, uh, that miracles can take place today. I even think God can give people the gift of, of tongues and the interpreting tongues, the gift of miracles, the gift of healings. Hey, put my cards on the table. I think God can still raise the dead. I do. Now, do I know anyone that's done it? No. Do I know anyone that says they've done it that I believe? No. But I got the same uh, criteria for evidence that you had to have for the resurrection of Jesus in the first century. We need to like have multiple eyewitnesses that are reliable. And I just know there are too many charlatans out there. Uh, there are too many guys out there that use supposed miracles uh, to fatten their bank accounts. And I can give you the name if you want them. I, I don't mind calling names. Uh, we, we'll start, if you want, with somebody like Benny Hinn or uh, Casey Treat. Uh, or uh, Kenneth Copeland and his crazy wife, Gloria. And uh, they're both crazy, by the way, so I shouldn't just pick on her. I, I'm an equal opportunity criticizer. But, uh, if, and, you know, you say, well, I don't like you doing that. I don't care if you like it or not. I really don't. I'll just be blunt because I love you. If you're so stupid as to give them money, shame on you. Because you're basically packing bucks into people that are multi, 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 multi millionaires who feast off of the monies of poor people who are just hoping that if they'll just sow that seed, they'll be like Ken and Gloria. And i got news for you, it doesn't happen. Furthermore, for you to buy into all that kind of stuff is to indict our brothers and sisters around the world who live in abject poverty but are faithful to the gospel and faithful to Christ. I mean, what are you, what are you thinking? Are you trying to tell me you're more spiritual than they are? Really? When they put their lives on the line, I'm going to China uh, in May. And I'll be working with about 12 pastors. Every single one of them has spent time in prison. Every one of them. None of them are wealthy. You're telling me they're not faithful and in many ways probably much more courageous than me and you? I mean, are you kidding me? I mean, the, the whole prosperity gospel thing is such a sham, and yet it just reveals how... You know, Jesus said we're like sheep, and sheep are not known for their high intelligence. And you separate yourself from the clear teaching of God's Word, and you'll walk down a path of stupidity and foolishness. He tells us here the false prophet 
who was captured in his presence, did signs by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast. So, number one, not everything that appears to be a miracle is a miracle. But number two, not everything that is a miracle is necessarily a miracle from God. In fact, always ask the question when it comes to a miracle, who gets the praise? The master or the one who allegedly did the miracle? And if the attention focuses more on some human instrument than it does the Lord Jesus Christ, you just mark it down. Man, that's not of God. It may be demonic. At best, it's psychological manipulation. No, the false prophet is going to show up and he is going to do miracles. He is going to do signs. And he's going to deceive the whole world into thinking this dude right here is the true Christ. They'll even worship him as God. Well, there is an expiration date on their reign of terror. And the Bible says there in verse 19, he did this and those who worship the image and what happened to them? These two were thrown, the next word is so important, alive. They were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur and some translations even add the phrase brimstone. Now here's what's important. Stay with me, we're almost through. When Satan gets thrown into the lake of fire after the millennium, False prophet and the beast are still there, fully conscious and very much aware of what's going on. You say, what's the big deal about that? It demonstrates the falsity and the uh, untruthfulness of what is known as the doctrine of annihilationism. Have you ever heard of the doctrine of annihilationism or what sometimes it's called in a philosophical way, conditional immortality? It goes something like this. Uh, people who trust Christ and believe in Him will go to heaven and receive eternal life. And they will live in heaven with Christ forever and ever and ever and ever. People who do not receive Christ and trust in Him will go to hell, but hell is annihilation. In other words, they cease to exist. You say, who teaches that? The Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, Seventh-day Adventists, and an increasing number of liberal and evangelical theologians who simply find it unpalatable, uh, unconscionable, uh, unacceptable that God would cause people to suffer forever and ever and ever. They just can't handle that. So they have created a kind of halfway position called annihilationism. The problem is you simply cannot find it in the Bible. I'll grant, brothers and sisters, in my um, sentimentalism, in my fallen humanity, I, I kind of like the idea. I, I mean, if there's anybody here tonight that likes the idea of people suffering in hell forever, you need to be in therapy. In fact, you probably need to be on drugs, okay? And i got some good guys I can recommend to you, okay? There's nothing delightful about that thought. Nothing at all. In fact, that's why Jesus went to the cross. You see, if there is no hell, then what was he doing? Why would he do it? Furthermore, when we get there, I'll show you all the verses. No one, you've heard it all of your lives if you've been in church a long time, and it's absolutely true. No one talked about hell more than Jesus. That's a fact. No one talked about hell more than Jesus. You say, why do you think so? Because, number one, he knew how horrible it was. And he did everything he could to keep people from going there. So we close. Look at what it says there again. They were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with brimstone. Jesus captures his enemies. And then finally, Jesus slays his enemies. Verse 21. And the rest, that is the rest of humanity, 
They were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who sits on the horse. I don't think we speak of that in terms of a literal uh, uh, sword come out of his mouth. It's an apocalyptic way of saying he speaks the word and the judgment is immediate and the judgment is total. And as a result of that, all of the birds were gorged with their flesh. Let me quote with how John Phillips, the wonderful Bible teacher who retired here in, in the Raleigh area, said it. Quote, Then suddenly it will all be over. In fact, there will be no war at all in the sense that we think of war. There will be just a word spoken from him who sits astride the great white horse. Once he spoke a word to a fig tree and it withered away. Once he spoke a word to howling winds and heaving waves and the storm clouds vanished and the waves fell still. Once he spoke to a legion of demons bursting at the seams of a poor man's soul and they instantly all fled. Now he speaks a word and the war is over. The blasphemous, loud-mouthed beast, I like that, is stricken where he stands. The false prophet, the miracle-working windbag from the pit, is punctured and still. Another word, and the panic-stricken armies reel and stagger and fall down dead. Field marshals and generals, admirals and air commanders, soldiers and sailors, rank and file, one and all, they fall. And the vultures descend and cover the scene. David Platt, the new president of our International Mission Board, says it like this. What a powerful picture of Christ on a white horse. Faithful and true, the righteous judge and messianic warrior who sees all, knows all, and judges all, crowned with diadems and shrouded in mystery. He comes to conquer God's enemies once and for all to end the history of the world with the revelation of God's Word, to rule the nations as He brings the wrath of God upon this world, dominated by sin and Satan. Truly He is the King of kings, and He is the Lord of lords. Next week, happy news, the Millennial Kingdom. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. The second coming uh, should have a twofold impact on those who hear of it. For those who know You as Lord and Savior, our hearts leap within us and we, we cry out with John, even so today, come Lord Jesus. But if one does not know You as Lord and Savior, then these words should strike terror and fear in their hearts. And Lord, I remember an old Jewish evangelist many years ago saying at a revival service that I attended, if I could scare you from going to hell, I would. It is such a terrible place. I really can't disagree with that. I'm not big on using fear tactics, but Lord, if indeed fear will drive one from themselves to Jesus, then Lord, then use fear to bring them to saving faith in Christ. Why? Because as your word teaches, hell is a horrible, terrible place, and it is forever and ever and ever. Why do we know that? Because your word says so. Even more importantly, Jesus said so. So, Lord, may we then be motivated to share the good news that you don't have to go to hell. You can go to heaven, but there is only one way, and his name is Jesus. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Blessings, brothers and sisters. I'll see you next Wednesday night.